Hello, and welcome to the Phoenix Cast. Your host, M. Alves, and joining me today is Megan Cullen. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's snow day. That's very exciting. With Colorado, so you never know. It could be just another surprise uh, six to ten inches. Yes. Kevin, my partner, asked me yesterday, he's like, do you think this is the last one? And I was like, no, there's always one in May. Always. At the very least, there's always a late April one. Yes. Somewhere in there, right? We have like nice spring weather and then all of a sudden it's just like foot of snow. Yes. <laughs> but I prefer this. Uh, <laughs> very much enjoying the um, the accumulation. It looks pretty and not just dirty. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. When I was in school in Boston, like in, in Boston and a lot of New England, you like the mm. snow falls and then stays for oh, like wow. months at a time. Oh. Right. And like more snow falls and it looks pretty for a minute. But like it just it's just that cold. And it's just that snowy that it just stays. So then, like, by March, it's just this gray, gross slush that melts and shows you all the bikes that have been crushed by snowplows. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure lots of really surprising things were found in snowbanks, actually. 100%. Oof. (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about consensual language around non-consensual acts and kind of just talking about why this is an issue. And so, Megan, you were the one who brought this uh, idea to the podcast. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you were like, ooh, this mm-hmm. is a great mini-sode? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that it's not well known, and a lot of people don't think about it when we're talking about rape, right? So some people will say, like, non-consensual sex does not exist. Non-consensual sex is rape or sexual violence Mm -hmm. or sexual assault, anything in that sort of bucket Mm -hmm. of words. It isn't sex, right? Sex is the Mm -hmm. word that we use to talk about consensual intercourse or consensual Mm and like sexual interactions, right? Right. And when we use the language, the same language that we use for consensual encounters for non-consensual encounters, it is devaluing to that non-consensual encounter, right? It, It takes away Like the reason we use often the reason that we use those words is because we don't want to say rape or we don't want to say sexual assault Mm -hmm. or we don't want to say sexual violence because they're harsh, but they're harsh for a reason. The act is harsh, right? The act is violent, whether it was violent in in a way that we often think of first with like physical threats and things like that or violent just Mm -hmm. insofar – which is enough, by the way, just insofar as somebody – something happened to someone that they didn't want to happen to them. Right. Like that is violence. Mm -hmm. And when we use the language of consensual sex to talk about that, it just totally undermines like the import of what happened and like the impact of what happened. Because then you have people who are like, you know, why am I like having this big issue about this? Well, because it was traumatic Mm -hmm. and it was violent and that's not okay, and that shouldn't have happened. But then we use all this consent language around it and it just like really muddies the waters. A lot like that description. (laughs) (laughs) no I think I think that's a helpful place to start right like the way that I see it often play out right like is especially around coercion right like Mm -hmm. and so for our listeners coercion to really like boil it down and simplify it is essentially like no doesn't mean convince me Mm -hmm. right so like someone has already said no or um, indicated in some way that they're not 
interested in moving forward and like the person, the aggressor, the instigator is going Mm -hmm. like, oh, are you sure? Like, oh, don't you really love me? Like, it's my birthday. That's my favorite. Right. All of those things. Right. And so like oftentimes I see like people describe that as non-consensual sex when that actually caused trauma for the survivor and the survivor is actually identifying it as sexual assault. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this, like, what that ends up doing is that within the culture, it also erases the opportunity for a lot of people to realize that they may have experienced assault, right? Mm-hmm. Because when at in the public realm, it's always being portrayed as, like, non-consensual sex or, like, mm-hmm. confusing consent and, and like, mm-hmm. all of that. Like, I think of Az- Aziz Ansari. Blurred lines. Yes. Yes. I realize that is an old reference and it still makes me upset. <laughs> no, I mean, it's definitely still makes me upset. Although, yeah, now I'm like, wow, is that like seven or eight years ago? I'm feeling a little old. Don't talk to me. <laughs> but, but I think Aziz Ansari is like a really good example of that, right? Like, I think that when mm-hmm. people were talking about that, they weren't putting it in terms of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Mm-hmm. They were putting it in mm-hmm. terms of like unclear sexual encounters or something. And that to me really erases the- It was real clear to the victim. Right, exactly. And like, how can you actually truly consent to something when that power dynamic is so great, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that's something that a lot of people really get lost in. Mm -hmm. I think, but here's the thing though. And I think that often, and I'm not undermining at all what you just said, because I think Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. I think where people get muddy around that is like, well, if the power dynamic is there and you can't truly consent with a power dynamic like that, so then can celebrities never have sex? I mean, I sort of think that they can't ever have sex with fans and have it be consensual, right? Right. Like, it has to be one of those situations where, like, they don't know who you are. They're on the same social level as you, right? Like, I think about a lot of the celebrity couples, right, or people who've been in relationship together are often two celebrities, right? And a lot of times we hear that as, like, well, they understand and they get it and they know what this life is like. They know what they're signing up for, which all of that is relevant and valid. And it also erases that consent issue, right? At the same time that it erases, like, the doubts of they just want me for my money and my fame, right? Or like, I'm just in a relationship with this person because I'm so starstruck by them that this is just like my fantasy, my dream, right? Right. It also erases that power disparity that can show that can show up not only in sexual assault type ways, but can also show up in like coercive ways, abusive ways, just a lot of like inequity in that relationship that is really difficult to surmount. Right, right. Like, Unless you know how to actively mitigate those power dynamics, Mm -hmm. which is very difficult. And I think that very few people actually know how to do that. Like, I don't think that you could ever really mitigate that power dynamic, even with all the training in the world. And so, like, how do you, like, take that out of the context of anything going on in your life? Like, right. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, even asking someone to take out the trash can be a power play in a sense, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think celebrity culture and like this, this like stardom that we've built around celebrities mm-hmm. um, and like this idea that we know them um, is a huge part of that problem as well. Yeah, we don't, right? It's like sometimes people will talk about how, you know, celebrity is lonely and it's like, well, how could it possibly be lonely? All these people love you. All those people love a picture of you. They love an image. They love a creation, which could very well be like a part of your genuine self, but is not your whole authentic genuine self, right? We don't know them. We have no idea. Even with the advent of Instagram and like the fact that we have 
unbridled access insofar as they allow us to, to more personal aspects of their lives, right? Like we don't know them. We can't, right? And I think that that feeling is why it's really difficult for people to kind of to swallow the fact that you can't have an equitable relationship with someone who has that much institutional power. But I also kind of have another question for you, Megan, because yeah. around this topic, I think it can get really complicated, especially when we think about like how sexual citizens is asking us to think about like the language that mm. we use and how many mm-hmm. how many people we are often using um, losing, right? When we also don't use the language that people might mm-hmm. actually use for themselves. Yep. I was thinking that too when I was talking through the original definition, right? Because like there is a fine line to balance when we're talking about like we need to reflect and honor what someone is using to speak about their own experience. And I think that that's the line, right? Mm -hmm. When we as people external to a situation, reporters, writers, whatever, are talking about a situation, it is our responsibility not to use the language of consensual sex. Mm -hmm. This came up because of the episode that we did around a teacher Mm -hmm. and when we like one of the first things we talked about in that episode was the fact that like we were using the word relationship (laughs) but it's not really a relationship because relationship is a word that we use to discuss consensual equitable encounters or like partnerships or other entanglements with other people right but like that's how it came up for me right but if a survivor comes into my into our office and says, this person had sex with me against mm-hmm. my will, we're not going to correct them and say, like, well, that was sexual assault. Like, we don't get to decide that. We don't get to tell someone how their experience should be defined unless they ask, right? Unless they're like, would this be considered sexual assault? And then we can say something like, according to a right. definition, yes, right? And it's really up to you how you are reflecting on and experienced this thing to determine whether or not this was violent to you, right? So there's a fine line there. I think it's it's when you're talking to a survivor, you honor their language right. regardless, right? Always. I see this a lot, mm-hmm. or I used to, when I used to work more directly with survivors and when we would go to like forensic interviews and things like that, where they would say like fingering or they would say like any other language for any other sex act, right? Because that's the language that was accessible to them in that moment. And that's the language that made sense, right? When like, what's the alternative, right? What is the the alternative that really truly captures what happened? They digitally penetrated you without your consent. That is so mm-hmm. clinical and and so, mm-hmm. and it's correct insofar as it captures the non-consensu- non-consensuality mm-hmm, of, uh, of the experience, but mm-hmm. it's also not the words that are going to come to someone, especially in a moment of trauma. Right. And also, like, sometimes they're not necessarily even realizing the full impact of what has happened yet, right? Like, mm-hmm. their brain is in trauma mode. So, right. like, they are not necessarily, like, they may actually be currently in shock and not necessarily realizing what's going on. And then, like, so something that Sexual Citizens talks about is that, like, when someone starts out using that language of like non-consensual sex, right? Like that's because their brain in some ways, whether consciously or unconsciously is protecting them from the trauma that they experienced. Yep. And that like, even many people who have experienced non-consensual sex who made the active choice not to describe that as assault was because they personally felt that identifying as a survivor wasn't something that they could do, right? Mm -hmm. Like we talk about it. There's not a 
benefit. Absolutely. Everyone always acts like there's a benefit to identifying as a survivor, right? Like, and I think that there is a personal power in it, right? Right. I was gonna say there isn't an external benefit. Right, right. People think that there's like some societal benefit, right? But like really society (laughs) makes it really damn hard to be a survivor. Yeah, especially if you aren't – because here's the thing, right? Like when people have this idea that society gives you some kind of cookie for being a survivor, right? That is based on the idea like that you are the perfect survivor, right? Of which there are like exceedingly few, right? And perfect survivor being like, you know, there's a wonderful, wonderful comic. I think it's by Robot Hugs. And talks about the like kind of mocks this idea of a perfect victim or a perfect survivor, right? Um, this kind of person who was assaulted by a stranger right. who remembers everything, called the police immediately, like did all the quote unquote right things, right? Showed the perfect amount of, of emotion, not too much, not too little. Right, exactly. Didn't just go about their day the next day. It's like the Goldilocks survivor. Oh my gosh, right? yes. <laughs> Right. That doesn't I mean, I'm not going to say it doesn't exist because there are people for whom that is their journey. And that is like that reflects what they experienced. But they're so few and far between. Right. Mm -hmm. Like those are the people that society is like, oh, yes, come here. You you poor, sweet Goldilocks. And Goldilocks is a great perspective because often the perfect victim is white and blonde and cisgender and female. Right. Yeah. Um, So great analogy. And maybe inadvertently. Thank you. Yeah. So I think that it's it's just when we do our prevention workshops, like when we're talking about general sexual assault, we are talking like we are not going to be using the language of like non-consensual sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we talk about survivor experiences mm-hmm. and, and we do a presentation like supporting survivors, that's mm-hmm. definitely one of the things that we're going to touch on mm-hmm. and say that like many survivors may actually identify their experiences of sexual assault as sex that they didn't want to have, mm-hmm. right? It may not even sound like non-consensual sex, but that this was an encounter that they didn't really want to have, but Mm -hmm. that they find no personal power and no benefit Mm -hmm. in calling that assault, right? For them, Mm -hmm. it's psychologically safer to put that Mm -hmm. away and move on. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because I mean, you just think about how the brain handles traumatic situations, right? Like the brain is going to try to conceptualize it within the frame of things you already understand or things you've already experienced. Right. And so there's definitely a part of it that's just like, can I shove this into the box of other things I've experienced that like, we're not awesome, but like, don't need to change my entire life. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'll also say like, this isn't an an elective process, (laughs) right? This is something the brain does just sort of on its own. And if it fits in that box and you can integrate it that way and move forward, great. Awesome. Fantastic. Right. And if you can't, that's also not your fault. Like then it, then, okay. It's trauma. Mm -hmm. People used to ask me all the time, especially when I worked for the military, the difference between regret sex and rape. So regret sex being like, you were maybe too drunk and went home with someone or didn't or whatever, had some sort of sexual encounter um, with a person. And then we're like, no, I wish I hadn't done that. Right. But I did, but I did. Right. What I always say is, one, generally speaking with regret sex, though not always, you remember making the decision to do this, 
Mm-hmm. Right. Like you recall the thought process, whether you agree with it when you're sober or not, you recall the thought process that led you to this situation. Right. <laughs> right. And then furthermore, and this is the big test, right? Regret sex is not traumatic. Yeah. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. Right. I wish that hadn't happened. I wish I hadn't made that series of choices. Whatever it is, is regret. Right. I didn't have any control over this happening or I whether in any way, right, whether that was like physically forced or someone taking advantage mm-hmm. of a situation or whatever, right? And I'm traumatized by the fact that another person enacted harm on me and I had mm-hmm. no power in that situation. That's trauma and that's rape, right? Like and I think yeah. That's a really important distinction when we're talking about the languaging, right? We always tell advocates don't put trauma where there isn't any. Right? If something that someone shares with you meets the definition, like the textbook definition of sexual assault, but they're not defining it that way, either in word or deed or experience, don't tell them they have to, you know? Right. And I think a lot of, um, a lot of people who don't do this work often don't realize that a lot of people who have experienced trauma have also experienced many, many traumas. And so something that is a part of this, Mm -hmm. um, is the fact that like, someone has gotten so used to the presence of violence in their life that whatever specific thing happened that they're not naming as violence Mm -hmm. doesn't meet the threshold of alarm for them. Yeah. I love that. Yes. I don't remember if you talked about that in that, in our teacher episode, but regardless, do you want to sort of explain that again? Cause I think it's so important for, especially for folks who've experienced um, repeated or complex traumatic situations. Absolutely. So uh, essentially like, and you, if you look at polyvictimization, you can find out more about this. But polyvictimization essentially is like that someone is has experienced repeated traumas and is surrounded by potentially a community or a culture of violence. And so, like their alarm bells are like a little broken. If you think about that meme of like the dog in the fire room, right? Like that's what I think about when I think about poly victimization is mm-hmm. that someone is sitting there and saying, this is fine because I've experienced worse. And actually it's really interesting that you brought up the the idea of like regret sex. Uh, Cause we did it recently in our presentation, have someone ask like, can someone retroactively withdraw consent? <laughs> Right. Yep. So the the this is the the email I sent to clarify. Um, since I was not in that presentation, occasionally um, we get questions that I'll then follow up on within the presentation. So I sent an email mm-hmm. to the class saying regarding the idea of someone withdrawing consent the next day. There is a big difference, very similar to what you said, between sex that someone regrets and an assault that causes trauma. Many people have have sex that they regret, but recognize that they fully consented to which is different than someone who is experiencing trauma due to a lack of consent and or through coercion. Often the perception of withdrawing retroactively is tied Mm -hmm. to the perception that false reporting of sexual assault is rampant and false reports of sexual assault are very uncommon, though media often has you believe the opposite. Part of this misreporting is the difference between false and unfounded definitions Mm -hmm. of rape across state lines Unfounded allegations, those without sufficient evidence, are often included in the statistics. Many false reports Mm -hmm. are labeled that way when a survivor chooses to withdraw their statement, which can be for a variety of reasons. Avoiding re-traumatization, fear for their safety, fear of losing their job, etc. And when you control these factors, Mm -hmm. the rate of false reports can be between 2 to 6%, depending on the study. 
And it's also important to keep in mind that as many as 90% of sexual assault cases go completely unreported. Mm -hmm. I love that very thorough and accurate answer. I would also add just to it for the purpose of our conversation here today. Yeah. You know, two to 6% is the same rate. As mugging. Actually, I think it may be two to eight. Yeah, it's the same rate as every other kind Mm. of crime. This isn't special, right? Like people aren't running around false reporting rape at a much higher rate than they're false reporting anything else, right? Which is one thing. And then the other thing is, right, like sometimes people will decline to continue participating in investigation because they want to move on. Yeah. Investigations take forever, right? And trials can take years. Mm-hmm. And, and none of us here are saying, like, if that is the path that you choose and the path that works for you, that you shouldn't do that. You should. And you should have support mm-hmm. and you should have everything that you need to do that and to make that choice. And for those folks who were just like, I can't have it hanging over my head that the detective is going to call me again. I need to be right. able to just start moving on with my life, right, is also entirely reasonable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so the last point I really want to make here, um, I think, is also just something that we mentioned earlier, which is I think part of why people want to use non-consensual sex is because, like, there is a misunderstanding on what, of what violence means, mm-hmm. right? When, mm-hmm. Like, whenever I'm in a presentation and I ask people, like, what's the first thing you think of when you hear violence, when you hear sexual violence, when you hear relationship violence? And it is almost always something physical. It's either someone saying physical violence or like legitimately saying like hitting or punching, right? Or rape. Or yeah, or rape, right? And so like people, when they picture rape, they're also thinking about physically violent rape, right? Which is not the only type of rape, right? Like, and when I say physically violent rape, I mean like what the movies would have us believe is like very, very common, right? Like so someone sure. who has been attacked from behind, has been bound, is then being hit during um during the rape. There's a lot of physical damage going on, right? Words are also violent. M- manipulation mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. violent. Coercion is violent. Mm-hmm. Like the lack of consent mm-hmm. in and of itself mm-hmm. is violent. And I think that's a really big part of why people say non-consensual sex mm-hmm. is that they don't view the lack of consent as violent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because violent, I mean, like, I think about people conceptualizing violence the same way like MPAA ratings do. Right. That's you know what good, I mean? That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And I think that, like, sometimes I do think this definitely comes down to, like, American society. It's like... Mm -hmm. In terms of, like, the media we enjoy and the amount of violence present in it, Mm -hmm. I think that has a lot Mm -hmm. to do with just the desensitization and, like, that the general American public has to violence, Mm -hmm. even if they've never experienced violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100% agree with you. So any last thoughts, Megan, um, on this topic um, that you'd like to to throw out there for our listeners? Hmm. I think, like... More in summary, right? Use the words a survivor uses if you're talking to a survivor. If you're talking about a situation, remember that non-consensual sex doesn't exist. Non-consensual sex is rape. That is what it is. Use the language to just to to say what it is. And in that way, we will create a society that is more willing to accept that this is a thing that happens and fight to stop it. 
than pretend that it's something more palatable than it is. Absolutely. And I think that uh, like violence thrives in silence, right? And so if mm-hmm. we're not naming things, we're losing a lot of opportunities to put an end to violence. Absolutely. Um, and and then for any any folks who felt that they identified with, you know, like with survivors not wanting to name their experiences as, as rape or assault, just know that like, that is completely your choice. And if you also need to talk to someone and sort, sort through your experiences, that's what we're for. So make sure that you go to the PCA.org. And if you're interested in an appointment with an advocate, then you're able to set an appointment right on our website and an advocate will reach out to you to confirm that appointment, right? Because even if you're not quite sure how to name what happened to you, I can tell you that you're deserving of care. Yeah. And no one at the PCA is ever going to tell you, well, that's not sexual assault, so go away. Like, one, gross. Two, we're in the business of helping people. And if you're in our in our office, in our doors, virtually or otherwise, we're going to help. Awesome. Thank you so much, Megan, for coming on and talking about this important topic. For our listeners, please remember to rate, review, subscribe, share, and leave any comments. Let us know if there's anything that you resonated with, anything you disagreed with. We're always looking for your feedback, and we hope that this is a space that you feel comfortable providing feedback to. So thank you, and happy weekend. I'm waving like you can see me, which you can't. (laughs) (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.